Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Good morning, Hillside. It is uh, great to be here uh, again with you guys today. I always find it to be such an honor and a privilege to have an opportunity to share God's word with you. So I'm pumped up. I'm really excited. I hope you are too. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Uh, to those of you that are here physically, I can tell you it's such a blessing to see your faces. There's so many familiar faces. Uh, welcome. I love that. Um, and to those of you that are online, thank you for fellowshiping up with us today as well. It's, it's fantastic that you're with us. Um, So we're in our summer series right now called Mixtapes, and I, in only Elijah style, uh, took it way too literally, kind of like my son. Every once in a while, with all of this working from home, my son may barge into the room that I'm in and in our office, um, and he'll need something from me, and I'll say, hey, give me one minute. And then I'll hear him say, Alexa, set a timer for one minute. And I'm like, I didn't actually mean one minute. Well, I, um, <laughs> I took this a little literally myself, um, and I started thinking about this uh, even just from like, what's the formal de- definition of a mixtape? Again, something that you probably, a normal person at least, wouldn't need to ask Alexa, Alexa but I did. Um, and this is what it said. It said, it's a compilation of music from a variety of different sources. Pretty simple, and most of us should, would have been able to give that definition without looking it up. But nonetheless, I'm glad I did because it got me thinking about a couple things. Um, And it immediately brought me to think about um, all the different sources of information, all the different sources of ideas and opinions that tend to surround us all the time. And it's almost like we all kind of have this mixtape of our life kind of operating around us. Uh, And then I started to kind of question myself and say, what or who are the voices that are speaking into my life right now? And what happens when those voices, the mixtape of my life, whether they oppose each other in sometimes when one track opposes the other, but also what happens, what do I do when one of those voices um, actually oppose the word of God? And do I even know that it's opposing the word of God? Um, and so uh, I think it's true for all of us. We, we would, I think, you know, find ourselves in this, that our, in our day, we have voices that are constantly speaking to us all the time. I mean, does it feel loud out here to you guys, as loud as it feels to me? Uh, the voices of our friends and our coworkers who seem more opinionated than ever, the voices of intellectuals and pundits and scholars that we may follow or we appreciate their perspective or their point of view, uh, the voices of the media, the voices of politicians, the voices on social media, right? And if you think about it, social media is literally designed to amplify the voices that are around us. Um, And, you know, ultimately, this is a medium that absolutely can be used for good. um, And we've seen good things happen in a positive way on social media. But far too often, what it does is it it kind of cultivates this debate culture, this opinion culture. um, And it ultimately lets this disease of comparison kind of grow within us, right? Uh, And that is a disease that we want to avoid. Let me just say, we do not want to get into the place of finding ourselves, comparing ourselves to one another, Um, especially this fictionalized account of somebody's life that you find online. But we're online more than ever. I I, I found this research that I thought was fascinating, and I think you will too. Since COVID, right, the average person is taking in eight times the amount, 
of social media and TV. Eight times the amount. Uh, Think about that just for a second. Eight times the amount into their heart. Eight times the amount into their minds. Uh, And I don't know about you, but that's not a recipe for a healthy, victorious life for our hearts and our minds. Uh, And so today, what I want to do is I I just want to take a moment to talk about how we could be thinking about this from the scriptures and, and specifically what foundational things can we put into practice in our lives to win the battle for our heart and our mind. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, we're humbled to be in your presence once again as the body of Christ. Father, I just ask, Lord, that your spirit would move right now, that you'd make your word plain to us, and that every heart and every mind uh, would be open to the truth of your word, and as your word proclaims, that that truth would set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to be coming out of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, uh, verses 3 through 5 today. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Feel free to flip there or scroll there, however you get there. Um, feel free to get there. Um, but just for a little bit of background. So uh, the Apostle Paul wrote First and 2 Corinthians both. He actually wrote several letters uh, to the church in Corinth. Uh, and these are just the two that are in our Bibles today. Uh, and we know how Paul was. He, he kind of did things according to a certain plan. He would travel into an area. Um, he would share the gospel. Uh, he'd get a response for that gospel. Gatherings would then start to happen naturally. Small churches would form from those gatherings. Uh, then he would raise up elders to have leadership in the church uh, to maintain Uh, the theology of those churches and the structure in those churches. And then Paul would then move on and do it all over again in another area, right? Um, And so Paul was the first to bring the gospel to the church in Corinth. And I think it's important, and you'll see why as we move forward. Um, But in Corinth, there were some major issues. Um, Like many of the churches that were planted, they had a lot of persistent problems that you'll see through 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And what would happen is these people would kind of rise up, and whether intentionally or unintentionally, they would bring deception to the church. They would bring division, divisiveness uh, into the church. And even Paul sarcastically in 2 Corinthians called some of these people super apostles. He did it sarcastically because many of these people would try to elevate themselves above another apostle, another, uh, above another minister, and have personal wars against each other. And so Paul had to constantly contend with these voices, if you will, the mixtape of that time. Uh, he had to constantly contend with it, the different opinions, uh, the different points of view, the different intellectual thought structures that were being brought to the Corinthians. Um, and some of these things were taking hold in the church, and it was a major concern. It was being taken hold in the life of the believers. And so the body needed to take steps to protect themselves, and the body needed to uh, understand how they should be rightly thinking about this. And remember, deception is deception, right? If you can see deception coming from a long way away, it's not going to deceive anybody. Deception happens when you least expect it. It's one step at a time. It's one thought at a time. And so Paul was trying to raise this uh, to the church. And so I want to read with you 2 Corinthians chapter Uh, 10 verses 3 through 5. You can read it with me. For although we live in the flesh, Paul says, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God 
for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So firstly, verse number three, I just want to break this down a little bit for us. Uh, For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. So Paul in this defines this conflict as a war, right? He uses the language of battle. And I think that's interesting, right? Because sometimes we don't think about the voices that are around us as being used by the enemy to potentially lead us into deception, to lead us into divisiveness, and to separate us as believers. Um, But that's what Paul calls it. He calls it a battle. And so in order for us to get this, we have to believe that this war for our hearts and our minds is going on around us all the time. We have to believe that. We cannot be in denial of that. We do have a real enemy, and that enemy wants to distract us. He wants to divide us. He wants to bring confusion to us, and we have to believe that. But even as we believe that, it's important that we don't do what we naturally want to do, which is wage war according to the flesh. Look at verse number four. It says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. So it could have been so easy for Paul to wage war in the flesh in this situation. And just to continue to add the context, listen, he was being personally attacked by these quote unquote super apostles. These were personal attacks of Paul's character when he was away, you know, uh, either in prison or even building other churches in other areas. He was being personally attacked. His character was being attacked. His ministry was being attacked. They even had the audacity to attack his, uh, his authority as an apostle himself, saying that he's not a true apostle. And he was the one who actually established the church in the first place in Corinth, and yet he was being attacked this way. So I want to uh, offer to you this. There probably could have been nothing more personally offensive, personally offensive to Paul than what was going on in Corinth. It was personally offensive. And so often we deal with offenses ourselves, right? Sometimes those offenses are personal. Sometimes those offenses feel a little farther off. Maybe it's, it offends our point of view. Maybe it offends our God. Maybe it offends our uh, theology. Maybe it offends the way we think something should be. And yet in this moment, with the most personal thing that could be going on for Paul, he says, we can't wage war in the flesh. He understood that he was grounded in that. And unfortunately, some of us are fighting in the flesh today. We do, right? we, We fall victim to this sometimes. We fight in the flesh. When we're fighting in the flesh, we are fighting with the wrong weapons. When we fight in the flesh, we are fighting with the wrong weapons. So how do you know if you're fighting in the flesh? There's a lot of ways you can know. I'll I'll give you a couple. Number one, are you blaming people? When you find something that you might disagree with, are you blaming the person or are you blaming, or, or are you blaming the enemy? The idea, do you see them as someone that needs to have the truth of the gospel? Or do you blame the person? Do you make things about you versus them? Is it about the person? Is it about a group of people that may think a certain way or operate a certain way? Are we more concerned about being right versus being righteous? In the way that we approach people, do we approach people in love or 
Is it just about getting our point across and making sure that we're heard or making sure that we're right in the situation? It's important to get this, guys. Paul didn't wage war in the flesh. He, wanted to demo- he didn't want to demolish them. He wanted to demolish the strongholds that he recognized in them. Do you get that? He wanted to bring them into obedience with Christ. He wanted to bring them out of the bondage of their own minds. He saw it as bondage. He didn't see it as a person that wasn't worth saving. And like Paul, we have to care more about people. And we have to care about people enough that we try to pull down the stronghold, but not pull down the person. It's imperative. And we do that by doing it in love. In other words, when we're fighting in the flesh, we're fighting against the very people that we should be fighting for. We have to remember that. We have to remember at all times that the grace of God and the power of God still transforms lives. And he cares about their soul. And no matter what, no one is too far away from God to be reached by God. Amen? Look at verse number five with me. We demolish arguments in every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Sometimes I feel like if we would use a fraction of the energy that we tend to use in sharing the gospel as we do in putting, uh, it, defending ourselves and defending our positions, we could really change the world. We'd be making disciples at every turn if we were more focused on that. But how do we do this? How do we take every thought captive? How do we participate with God in the pulling down of strongholds, whether those strongholds be the voices that are around us or maybe they're our own thoughts and our own positions or our own traditions that we haven't been willing to let go of yet. How do we do this? Uh, How do we avoid the deep temptation uh, to wage war in the flesh, but instead to take every thought captive? Well, I want to give you three things today to consider, Uh, three things that you can consider today and you can take in your notes. The first is this, we have to use the right weapons. We have to use the right weapons. And the scriptures are clear. The right weapons are the word of God and prayer. The word of God and prayer. Read with me in Ephesians uh, chapter 6. This is where Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus, very similarly about spiritual warfare. And he breaks down uh, the armor of God. And there's six pieces of armor uh, that he says we should be equipped with in spiritual warfare. But I want to point out one specifically, but I'm going to read first in uh, chapter six, verse number 11. It says this, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil and spiritual forces in the heavens. And then he goes on to verse 17, which is where I want to focus for today. And he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. And then pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. As Paul talks about the armor of God, I think it's so intriguing to me. He only talks about one offensively positioned weapon. He talks about one weapon. Of the six pieces of armor, everything else is armor. It's for protection. It goes on us. And Trust me, it's really important to understand that these defensive weapons are very, very important. 
And while defensive weapons are important in war and in spiritual war, I believe that Paul in verses four and five of 2 Corinthians 10, he's speaking of taking initiative. He's speaking of uh, action. He's speaking of taking captives. He's speaking of an offensive position. And we need to take note of that. This phrase, taking captives, when you look at it in the Greek, it actually kind of gives this picture, and this is kind of how uh, the church in Corinth would have kind of pictured this when he said to take captive. It pictures specifically a soldier who has captured an enemy and then leads him into captivity with the point of a sharpened spear thrust into their back. Can you picture that? having the spear in their back and putting them where you would want them to go. The phrase in the Greek specifically means bringing someone into submission or slavery or to take control over. This is an offensive position. And our offensive weapon in the armor of God is exactly that. It's the word of God. It's the word of God. Hebrews 12, Hebrews 4, excuse me, uh, verse 12 says it this way. It says, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So here's what I want to offer to you today. It is in this time, in this season, so essential that we are deeply devoted to the study of God's word. This is a daily practice, right? We have to be devoted to the reading of, to uh, meditating upon, to understanding God's word, to memorizing God's word, to enjoying God's word. It's essential. And I know what some of you may be thinking, right, this seems obvious to some, but I can tell you that we've all had times in our life where we've struggled with this. We've all had times in our life where we've struggled to have a daily practice of putting God's word first in our life and equipping ourselves with the word of truth. But this is our only hope in defeating a supernatural enemy that is around us all the time with all that we take in, with all that we hear, with all the voices It's essential that we're equipped with the Word of God. And our approach to the Word of God matters as well. The approach matters. Uh, I I was reading a business book, and I was looking for another one, and I came across one that kind of claimed to say they, they figured out how to make someone an expert and to kind of excel them to the top of their field Um, And they came up with some research in this space. And the research concluded that 10,000 hours of practice, uh, have some of you heard this? Uh, It's a pretty popular study. Uh, 10,000 hour of practice will make you an expert. It'll bring you into the top levels of your field. And so obviously the back of the book is never is exactly what the inside of the book is. And so I picked it up and I read it. Um, And although somewhat intriguing, um, I I don't know that I could uh, totally recommend that I think this is completely true, but it was still interesting because once you open the book, it wasn't just about practice. It wasn't just about doing something for 10,000 hours. It specifically was about deliberate practice. And they defined deliberate practice as having a specific focused intention of improving a specific skill within the body of work that you're trying to accomplish. Much, so much more different, isn't it? When you think about uh, my son does art, um, and instead of drawing a face every time, I'll see pages and palm pages of just earlobes. 
And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm just practicing the air. I can't get the air right. And so I'm practicing all these different styles of airlobes. That's deliberate practice. Listen, when we approach the word of God, we should approach the word of God with intentionality. We have to. We have to approach the word of God submitting ourselves to the word of God when we enter with it, right? We have to submit all of our thoughts. We have to submit all of our ideas, all of our feelings about God, all of our feelings about our world, all of our feelings about people, whether those people are in our lives or those people represent a group of people. We have to submit those ideas to what the word of God says. We have to submit uh, our worldview that we hold so dear to us. We have to submit our desires. We all have desires and we have hopes for our children and for our family. We have to submit that to God's word. We have to have intentionality. What about our traditions and the way I was raised? Uh, And this is just the way I am. This is how my family thinks about this. This is how my family does this. We have to submit these things, the thought structures that make us who we are. We have to submit them to to the word of God. And we submit them to God's word. We have to think when we get into God's word, are we saying if there's anything in me or anything in my thinking that needs to be destroyed, that I'm availing it to the word of God to destroy it and we can walk away from it. We have to approach the word of God with intentionality. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of reasons why we go to the word of God. We go to the word of God for faith, right? We go to the word of God for encouragement, for hope, for truth. We go to the word of God to grow in wisdom and to grow in knowledge and understanding. But it's essential that we also grow to the word of God for scrutiny. And everything that's coming in and everything that's going out, we put through the filter of God's word. Amen? And if anything is out of sync with that, man, we, we got to let it go. We have to let it go. But even with the word of God, I would tell you that Uh, with the word of God, just like Paul said in Ephesians, uh, we also have to be a people that are committed to prayer. We have to be a people that are committed to prayer. We should ask that the Holy Spirit would work through us at all times, even as we're in the word of God, to open our eyes and open our hearts and allow us to have that level of position of, of submission to God's word. I believe that prayer puts us in the place where the power really is. If you think about this, we don't fight with mere human arguments, but Paul said that we have access to power through God and prayer exposes us to that power. It exposes us to the power of the Holy Spirit and it puts us in the right posture to approach God. It puts us in a posture of humility. When you have to pray, you are immediately admitting that you are under the power of God. And it puts us in a place of humility where we can allow God to move and allow the Holy Spirit to speak and to add revelation to our life. John Piper said it this way. I just, I I love the way John Piper wrote this. Uh, He said, prayer gets us to where we can cry out before God and say, I know that my intellect will not dismantle the deeply rooted errors of my mind. So I then avail myself to the Holy Spirit so that everything can be dismantled and my mind and my thoughts will be brought into conformity with Christ. That's what prayer does. And so these things go together, the study of the word of God, the commitment to the word of God and prayer. Many of of us have seen uh, Rocky movies, right? You guys have heard of Rocky. 
um, popular American film. He's made eight of these movies already, if, if you can believe that. Um, and if you don't know, it's a movie about uh, an underrated boxer uh, that ultimately defies the odds and becomes a champion. And when you think about a sports film and you think about a boxing film, uh, you would think that the final fight scene is where kind of the highlight of the movie is. That's what you would anticipate. You'd expect it to be full of action and full of blows and, um, and to, to, to keep you there and you're waiting till the end of the movie. Um, and even though that's where Rocky experiences ultimately complete victory, that's not the most popular scene in the movie. Uh, the most popular scene in Rocky movies are actually the training scenes. Have you noticed that? It's the training scenes. These are the scenes where Rocky, after going through a challenge, decides to accept this fight ultimately, and uh, he changes his mind and he decides to commit to the process of preparation for this upcoming fight. Uh, and this scene has the soundtrack behind it and the music, and you feel pumped up. You start putting on your sweatpants and your hoodie, you know, and you're ready to go. Um, but this is the scene that we all remember. Because the movie depicts it this way, that the real victory in the film is when Rocky commits to the preparation and to the discipline of training and specifically submits himself to the direction of his trainer. Listen, we know that we already have victory in Christ. We ultimately have an ultimate victory, but we too must be committed to the training. We must be committed to the preparation. We must be committed to the discipline and to equipping ourselves for the fight. And this happens in our submission to our trainer, and that's the Word of God. And when we avail ourselves to prayer so that the Holy Spirit can work in us. Amen? This is how we take thoughts captive. Number two is uh, being connected in community. Staying connected in a community uh, helps us to pull down strongholds, whether external or internal, and it helps us to take thoughts captive. Uh, take a look at this with me, Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verses uh, 13 and 14. This is what it says. It says, until we all reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness, then and only then will we no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by all the human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. How do we stop being blown around like leaves by every cultural wind and every cleverly articulated argument that we come across? Well, Paul says here that we do it in unity, and unity specifically around the knowledge of God and around the knowledge of God's Son, Jesus Christ. We need to be growing at all times in maturity, and maturity only comes when we're connected to one another. Uh, in some research that I was doing, and some of you may be from the West Coast, so you might be familiar with this, uh, there's this interesting tree, and by the way, you know like you're getting old when like you find trees interesting, uh, <laughs> but uh, there's this interesting tree in California and it's called a California redwood tree. I want to tell you a little bit about it. Um, I think it's really intriguing. Uh, California redwoods are among uh, the tallest and oldest trees on earth, believe it or not, right here in California. Uh, the secret to their stability, however, and longevity 
is that their roots uh, do something different than most trees do. They actually intertwine with one another in a unique way, in a unique pattern. So the tree has this kind of underground root system that's completely interconnected to one another like no other tree. And yet it's the tallest and long-lasting trees that we have on earth. So when fierce winds blow and other complexities come, like insect infestation or disease, uh, these trees actually last. And the reason why is because their connectedness allows them to borrow from one another and stand strong. Listen, this should be a picture of the church. This should be a picture of the church, interconnected, mature, and equipped to withstand the winds of this world, the winds that the culture blows our way. We should be interconnected. And we have to resist this feeling that comes up so often of self-sufficiency. We get it all the time. You know, I don't really need to be connected. I don't really need to show up for that D group. I don't really need to show up for that service. I don't really need to show up for whatever it is. I don't need to build a deeper, more lasting relationship with other believers. But it's a lie from the enemy. Can I tell you, it's a lie from the enemy. It's deceit trying to take hold in your heart. The way we take that captive is by getting connected in community. And this is a, such an interesting season for us right now, you know, being distanced from anybody. And what I would tell you is don't let this season of distance become a season of isolation. Don't let this season of distance become a season of isolation. The enemy wants to isolate you. He wants to make you feel like you're alone. He wants to get you all by yourself. And as the, as the voices around you and the social media and everything that you're taking in, you have no one to bounce it off of that can say, no, you're, 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 you're going down the wrong path with that one. Let's go back to the word of God and see if that's what it really means, if that's what it really says. Don't be isolated, even in this season. It can feel like we're isolated. We don't have to be. Let's stay connected as the body of Christ. This is how we win this battle. We need to be knitted together in the knowledge of God's Son, encouraging one another, uplifting one another, and sharpening one another. Proverbs 27, uh, 17, one of my favorite verses, says this, iron sharpens iron, just as one person sharpens another person. This picture kind of, I always felt like it showed two friends and you think about the mutual benefit that two friends have. But I believe it also shows uh, the relationship of a mentor and a mentee. And so often we, we get confused about this, right? We, we, we imagine that a mentee has so much more to gain from that relationship than a mentor does. But I don't think that's correct. I think mentors gain from those relationships just as much, maybe in a different way, but just as much. And so I would, I would ask you guys, if you are mature in your faith and you have something to offer, you should have a mentee. You should have somebody that you're discipling. You should have somebody younger than you coming up where you can show them the path as you see it through God's word. And if you need that, you should be connected to someone that is spirit-led and in the faith and has a strong, mature foundation in God's word that can help you through the life. There's so many voices around that can distract us and pull us off course, and we need that. And you see that in this verse, because left alone, both of these blades would be dull and useless without one another, the mentee and the mentor. But together, they're sharp and they're ready for battle.
And so here's my question for you today. Do you have someone in your life that is spirit-led and has permission to intentionally look for the vulnerabilities in your life? Hear me when I say that. First thing is, they have permission. You have verbally told them you have permission to look into my life. But it's not just, I saw something on the periphery that I just noticed. But you have intention to get in my business. Right? You have, intent, you have permission to intentionally look for open closet doors and try to find where the vulnerabilities are, where the areas that you need to mature are where the areas that you're thinking is wrong, where the areas that you're fighting a battle in the flesh. Did you give somebody permission to do that? We need it. Guys, we need it. If we're gonna pull down strongholds and take every thought captive, we need it. Because we can't walk alone. And then finally and lastly, number three, is um, we need to remember our testimony. Remember your testimony. I, I, I couldn't find anywhere that it was pictured better than in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. And, uh, and I think it's just a powerful story. Many of you know the story. It's popular. Uh, it's the story of David and Goliath. And uh, we know that, again, ultimately David would rise up and defeat Goliath because no one else was willing to step into the battle. But if we bring ourselves back there, for 40 days, Goliath and the Philistines mocked and defied the armies of God. They mocked and defied the armies of God right in front of them. Yet the Israelites were paralyzed. They couldn't move. These are mighty men of war because the words of the, the Philistines penetrated their minds and penetrated their hearts. And these mighty men of Israel, uh, these well-trained warriors that had been through war before. They were obviously there physically still alive. So they had been through war before. The God, their God had brought them through. But in those moments, they forgot who their God was. They, they thought it was about their own strength in those moments. And they began to think in the flesh. If I have to fight that guy in the flesh, I'm staying put. But the battle was never in the flesh. It was a battle for God and for God alone. And so here comes David, and he came along. But what did he came with? We remember the slingshot, and we remember the five stones. But what did David come with? David came with a testimony. David came with a testimony. And he was brought before the king, King Saul. And he was willing to share his faith-building experience that was able to bring down a stronghold. Let's look at it. It says, when King Saul told David no, you bring this young boy before the king, trying to be a wise king, it would be utterly irresponsible for me to send you out into this war, thinking in the flesh. And he told him no, and he actually looked at him and said, you're just a boy. You're just a boy. There's nothing that you can do in this fight that's gonna aid us. This is what uh, David said back, First uh, Samuel seventeen thirty seven. He said, "The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine." Come on, somebody, isn't that powerful? David led with a testimony. He said, "Listen, I may never have seen that giant before, 
But I can tell you what, the same God that was in the, the valley that I used to be in is the same God that I have here. And if the lion didn't stand a chance against my God, and if the bear didn't stand a chance against my God, then that giant definitely doesn't have a chance against my God. And he was willing to share his testimony. And your testimony is absolutely for you. You need to remember it sometimes when you're in the pits. You need to remember who God made you to be. You need to remember where God brought you from. But his testimony was not only for him. His testimony brought down the stronghold in Saul's mind. Look at what it says. It says, after he told Saul this testimony, Saul specifically said, go ahead and may the Lord your God be with you. You see, he learned. He didn't just say, you're going in. He said, I'll let you go as long as you bring that kind of God with you into that battle. Listen, let me tell you something. Never forget your testimony. It brings down strongholds. It brings down strongholds. And some of you may be thinking the way the enemy tried to make me think at one point, being somebody that for my entire life was raised in the church. You know, I don't really have like this big testimony. I don't have it. I don't have that lion or bear experience. I, I, I don't have the miracle experience to share. I've been looking for it. I want to have one. Listen, if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ today, you need to look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ for your testimony. That's where your testimony is. If you have salvation, if you have new life in Christ, if you are a new creature in Christ Jesus, you have a testimony. There is no greater work than the work of salvation, and you should share it. The dead in sin being raised to life and new, raised to life into righteousness of no work of our own. We need to be willing to share our testimony. And we should walk boldly with our testimony as a reminder to us, but also a faith builder to others. And so let me say this whether you're like Paul uh, in this time, fighting the prevalence of thought systems that attempt to undermine the truth. Um, and, and even to undermine the essence of the gospel, or whether it's your own opinions or your own worldviews or your own thoughts that you're leading with that are contrary to God's word, or even if it's not in the spirit of how God would want you to share it or say it, or in the place that he, you should share it or say it, you have to remember that you're in a battle, and we need to be deeply devoted to the word of God and to prayer. We need to be knitted together in community on one another so that we can sharpen one another with the word of God. And we need to have boldness to remember where God brought us from and to remember our testimony and share it boldly. Amen? Amen. Maybe you're here today and you hear us singing about this victory that we have. And maybe you haven't accepted Jesus Christ into your life yet and you want that you want that victory that he has secured for us through his life and through his death and through his burial and through his resurrection then today's your day today's your day that you can walk in victory with Christ and we'd love to talk to you about that today and so after service out in our connect area you can see us out there if you 
wanna talk through that, we'd love to pray with you online. We have a QR code. And you can scan that and connect with someone, even right now, that would love to pray with you and talk to you about that. Amen? Amen? And maybe you're a Christian and maybe you say, hey, I'm a Christian. But after hearing this today, I've never really committed myself to studying God's word. You know, I'm a Christian, but I've never really had a prayer life. I'm a Christian, but I haven't committed myself to relationships with other believers. Start today. Start today. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you for your presence and your spirit. And I just pray, Father, that even as we take your word out into this world, Lord, that we would be changed people as we go and approach this world around us. And that ultimately, Father, we would look to you for everything in our life. That we would see the world uh, through the filter of your word. And that if anything is in our life or in our mind or in our thinking that's holding us back, Lord, we submit it unto you, Father so that the truth of your word would live in us. In Jesus' name, amen.